I suppose it all depends on whether you can swim. I can't, and so the idea of the vast grey sea can seem quite intimidating, overwhelming to me. Even paddling in the Irish Sea at Blackpool can give me the shivers if I suddenly feel a strip of seaweed curl itself around my ankle. It's enough to make me jump out of the water. But after a nuclear war, that all changes. The sea becomes a place of safety. It becomes a place to hide. It becomes a place to tip all those unsightly, stinking corpses. And it becomes a means, perhaps the only means, by which Britain, an island nation, can cling on to survival. I've talked in previous podcasts about the disposal of the dead after nuclear war. Uh, Any new listeners of a nicely morbid persuasion might want to check out episodes called Disposal of the Dead and A Decent Burial. And so I won't cover it here in great detail, but as mentioned previously, getting rid of the corpses was a huge concern for the authorities. You're talking millions and millions of dead. Leaving them where they fell, or melted, is a hindrance to any eventual clearance and rescue work. It will also encourage rats and insects, and by allowing those little blighters to thrive, you're encouraging the spread of disease. But the worst threat posed by heaps of unburied dead is the threat to morale. There's nothing more likely to put a dent in your day. So the authorities wanted those things gone and gone as soon as possible. But with manpower, machinery and fuel likely to be a tad limited after nuclear war, they were forced to look at alternatives to simple burial or cremation. And that's where the sea comes in. I've seen plans in the archives to load bodies onto barges, tow them out to sea, then sink them. I imagine so many bodies being dumped in the sea that low tides would reveal white, lifeless hands poking out of the water and strands of hair waving at the survivors on the shore. Isn't that just horrible? I also said the sea becomes a place of safety in a nuclear war. Well, think about it. Where are the bombs and the missiles aimed? At cities, ports, runways, bridges, factories, airbases. Things which are, of course, on land. No one is aiming for the sea. For a big, blank expanse of water. If you can put to sea in a boat, or even better, a submarine, if you have one tucked away in the shed, you can be quite sure... No one's aiming anything unpleasant at you. It doesn't mean the eventual fallout won't get you, of course. But then boats can move, can't they? If you've got a radio and proper instruments on board, you can measure the radiation and the wind direction and make a bit of a dash for it. Try and sail to safety. Now, that's not as far-fetched as it sounds. Indeed, that was a top-secret plan of the British government in the Cold War. Under their carefully guarded Python scheme, central government planned to split itself into small groups which would hide out in protected locations across the country. Two of those groups would have been out at sea. One group would board either the Royal Yacht Britannia or HMS Engadine in Scotland at either Loch Torridon or Oban. Alongside these scattered groups of politicians, there were also six support groups 
who'd have been focused on keeping Britain supplied after nuclear war. There's no point trying to keep the country surviving if there's nothing to feed it with. These little groups were similarly scattered across the country, and as I said, one of them would have been hiding out at sea. So what would they have been sailing on? Well, the government ordered three specially designed ferries from the passenger ferry operator Caledonia McBrain. In ordinary times, these three ships would sail as perfectly normal passenger ferries, but if required, would be handed over to the government to act as floating nuclear bunkers. I'll quote from an article I wrote about this very thing for the Sunday Herald. Each ship had massive guillotine-style doors which could seal the car deck. The external doors and vents were airtight. There were decontamination rooms with showers. The air pressure could be altered to repel external contamination and the exterior of the ship had sprinklers so that fallout could be washed away. In the event of nuclear war, one of these ships would have hosted a UKSA group whose duty was to obtain and distribute supplies to a devastated Britain. They would have surveyed the country's food stocks and surviving agriculture, assessed the food requirements of the regions, given that the country's population would have been in flux, with previously empty regions now likely to be filled with refugees from urban areas, and they would have arranged for the procurement of supplies from overseas. The importance of the UKSA groups, such as the whiskey section destined for the Calmac ship, cannot be overestimated. And a Whitehall memorandum noted that without a surviving UKSA group, Britain, quote, would cease to exist as a country. Now, again, this is still from the Sunday Herald article. One more paragraph from it. I did write it after all. The Calmac ship wouldn't have sheltered politicians. It would have held experts in shipping, communications and oil distribution, plus trade advisors in areas such as meat, milk and cereals. The Ministry of Agriculture, Fisheries and Food quietly surveyed people from these fields, drawing up biographies of likely candidates and assessing their education, their CVs and also their character. There were notes such as, quote, he would thrive on adversity. And also a remark that another was keen on rugby and had been capped for Scotland. Lord Sainsbury himself was suggested as a suitable candidate to be in charge of meats, but was deemed, quote, too old and gentle. That's the end of the Sunday Herald's um, quote. Let me give credit here to the researcher Mike Kenner. It was Mike who got all this brilliant info from the government using tireless freedom of information requests, and he very kindly shared it with me. Mike is an expert on continuity of government after nuclear war and you can find him and all his work on Twitter under the name Wellbright. But would the sea indeed have been quiet? NATO planning often envisaged war at sea alongside a nuclear exchange. If so, then our little supply teams would not have had much luck getting anything through. We must also remember the sea wouldn't necessarily have been empty and silent during nuclear conflict. Many of us, and I admit that I am one of them, often think of nuclear war as being quick and clinical. Uh, You know, Brezhnev presses a red button in Moscow, Reagan presses one in Washington, the missiles fly and we're all dead in a few minutes. 
It wouldn't have been that way, of course. Um, often British nuclear planners envisage nuclear war not being a bolt from the blue, not being that surprise attack with four minutes left, but coming after a period of conventional war, which then escalates into nuclear war. But even if there was no conventional war to start with, even if there were no naval battles, the ocean is still of extraordinary military importance in nuclear war, of course, because we have nuclear submarines. Indeed, Britain has no nuclear bombers and no nuclear missiles tucked away on land in silos. Our nuclear weapons are all out at sea on board submarines. But first, let's get with the lingo. The first thing you learn when reading about submarines is that no one refers to them as submarines. They're properly called boats. So even if you do take to the sea to avoid nuclear war or to escape fallout, And even if things do seem nice and quiet out there, there could be a nuclear submarine, a boat, underneath you, totally silent. Now, I'm not going to go into detail about nuclear submarines because, as you know, this podcast isn't about the military aspects of nuclear war. It's about people, how people responded to the nuclear threat and how people prepared for it. But I can't help bringing you two interesting snippets of nuclear submarines and how they are involved in unleashing nuclear war. The first, uh, and I got this from the book The Silent Deep by Peter Hennessy and James Jinks, tells us how a British Prime Minister would give authorisation for the submarines to launch their nuclear missiles. The submarine commander out at sea, he can't launch without the Prime Minister's authorisation. Of course not. You can't just end the world without the teacher's permission. So how does that work? How does he get authorisation? A review in 1967 brought this process in. Your submarine commander might get an order to fire from NATO, but he still can't launch until he gets a separate authorisation from the British government. So how does he get that? Well, he relies on the commander-in-chief of the Western Fleet who's based in a bunker in Middlesex, to relay it to him. Okay, fine, but how does your man in Middlesex know that he's getting the real authorisation from the real Prime Minister? A phone call isn't going to cut it. Someone could be on the line impersonating the Prime Minister. Or the Prime Minister could be on the phone, it could be the real person, but they could have a gun held to their head, or their family could be held hostage. No, he needs to see the Prime Minister giving him the order. And for the same reason, the Prime Minister needs to see him. So a two-way CCTV system was installed, one monitor at 10 Downing Street and the other in the bunker at Middlesex. And this was tested every day, of course, to make sure everything was tickety-boo. Now, I don't know if that's still the process now. Maybe we're not supposed to know what the process is now. I just know that that is what they began doing in 1967. The second uh, aspect I want to tell you about concerns a surprise attack, a bolt from the blue. The process I've just given you there involving the CCTV only works if you've got lots of notice, if you're descending slowly into nuclear war and you think it might be necessary, and therefore your PM can be sitting at the camera with your commander at the other end in the bunker, ready to speak to one another. But what if we have a bolt from the blue, a surprise attack, that infamous four-minute warning? 
Well, there's no time then, of course, for conference calls. So what happens then if you've just got minutes to decide? Well, if the commander in the bunker can't reach the Prime Minister, he could maybe take permission from one of the Prime Minister's appointed nuclear deputies. That's cabinet ministers who've, in advance, been given authorization to act for the Prime Minister to deliver the nuclear command if the Prime Minister is unavailable or, of course, dead, if they've already been attacked. Now, what if the commander can't get the nuclear deputies? What if the commander himself has been wiped out in the surprise attack? What if there's no one left to give any kind of order to the submarines? In that scenario, there were some instructions that the the commanders out at sea try to tune in to BBC Radio or, as a last resort, place themselves under US command. Now, according to Peter Hennessy's book, Peter Hennessy and James Jinks, The Silent Deep, this wasn't ideal. So from 1972 onwards, a new scheme was devised. And it's one which always sends shivers up and down my spine. From 1972, if Britain was attacked by nuclear weapons and the submarine commanders out at sea were receiving no instructions, and if it became obvious that no instruction was ever going to arrive, then they were to open a safe on board and take out a sealed envelope. Inside that envelope was a handwritten letter from the Prime Minister giving instructions from beyond the grave. So in the nice safety of her office in Downing Street, the Prime Minister, and every British Prime Minister now does this, when they take office, they sit down alone, no one knows what they write, and they write out four copies of a letter saying what they want their commander to do, how they want their commander to retaliate if they are no longer available to give the order. Four copies of these letters are written and a copy is put in a safe on each of Britain's four nuclear submarines and those letters should only be opened and read in this terrible scenario where it's obvious that nuclear war has struck Britain and there is no one left in Britain to issue a command. If they want to know what to do, they've got to open this safe and extract this dreadful letter. These letters are known as the letters of last resort. I've already done a podcast on this if you want to get uh, some more detail on that. And of course, there's plenty online about it. The BBC uh, also did a play about it, which is brilliant. It's called The Human Button, and you can find that on YouTube. Now, before we end this podcast, let's just end with a bit of black humour. I suppose these plans will work as long as your submarine crew don't all go mad and start disobeying orders and ripping up letters. Again, the book Silent Deep covers the possibility of a suddenly insane nuclear submarine crew. Let me quote here from the book. Ken Frewer, CEO of HMS Resolution, agreed, If you can envisage 143 people all going mad at once... I suppose it is just conceivable, he said, before adding, in my opinion, it is not conceivable, because the attitude we take to this job is a professional attitude. We are not either morally or philosophically involved. We are in the Royal Navy. This is our job, and we do as we're told. We also have, as an added adjuncture, a doctor on board to keep an eye on us all.
The book goes on to say, Indeed, all personnel, whether serving on board the submarines or working at Faz Lane, Coolport and the operating headquarters, had their medical records checked in order to safeguard the weapon system against sabotage, inadvertent arming, launching or firing. CEOs were also given strict instructions to, quote, keep constant watch on all personnel under their command, end quote, for any officers or ratings who, quote, showed signs of mental or emotional instability. enjoyed the podcast this week if you want to support it you can chip in some money through my patreon account go to patreon.com forward slash atomic hobo where you can also get nuclear themed rewards for contributing i also want to give a shout out to my patrons alan christie andrew key angus mcclellan ben capper brian outlaw claire brennan colin mcgee damian ryan douglas greenshields ewan mcleod gordy mcnair Helen McHale, Jacqueline Brick, Jonathan Abelins, Lainey Peterson, Lee Pierce, Mary Freer, Paul Jonathan Viner, Paul Maxwell Walters, Peter Lee, Peter Mars, Phil Catling, Sarah Williams, Sean Judge, Sean Milson, Steve Sace, Wynne Grant. And if you want to contact me with any suggestions or questions about the podcast, you can find me on Twitter at Julie A. McDowell, find me on Facebook at my page Nuclear Britain, or go to my website at juliemcdowell.com. Thank you again for listening, and I'll be back next week.